You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello and welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is your host, Abraham. And today we are going to pick up where we left off in our conversation with Stu Law talking about psychedelics. We had decided after that interview to split that episode into two separate episodes so that it wasn't really, really long and just to have them be about the same length across the discussions that we had. And we found sort of a natural breaking point in that discussion and separated it. So please enjoy part three of this discussion with Stu Law finishing up our conversation about psychedelics. You know, I think just having the thought of talking about how and why this works, and the intention here was not really to break down the process by which psychedelics work in the brain, although I think that'd be a perfectly interesting topic at some point in and of itself. But we talk about a lot on this podcast that we are biological organisms, Mm -hmm. and we're biological organisms that sort of operate within whatever situation and context we find ourselves in a way that is as advantageous as it can be given our repertoire, what our skills are in that circumstance, what we've learned, what we know, what we can interpret about what's going on. And What's important then is once you start to change the biology, well, then that's going to change the process by which they interact with it. So, for example, if I all of a sudden don't have one of my legs, well, then the way I think about how I'm going to navigate my environment is going to be different than it was when I had two legs. And if I were to disrupt my vision by, say, injecting something into my brain where all of my eyeballs are connected to the other parts of my body, well, then the world's going to look very different to me than it did before. And so it makes a lot of sense just to think about without understanding well, we'll get to that at some point, but without diving into specifically what the chemicals do to the various neurotransmitters and things in our brain, is that once we start to disrupt the normal processes that take place, it makes sense that the experience we have and the way that we interact with the world is just going to be different because we've altered the biological context, which means that the way that we interact with our environmental context is going to be different. And it's, I think, unfortunately, that's as mundane as it is. That's how the process sort of works with these psychedelics is we have changed something about the biology that's very different from what we're used to. And it's going to make our environment seem very different to us. Yeah. And, you know, sort of the early data is suggesting that those changes are related to the kinds of parts of the brain, if there are any, that are related to self-perception. Okay. Right. So like that would map on to this idea that the kinds of languaging functions that we call dectics, right? Those Mm -hmm. I, you, here, now, then, self-perception kind of processes, those tend to occur in similar parts of the brain, and those are similar parts that are affected by these substances. Okay, so it makes sense. And so, like, if a substance really impacted, for example, where our auditory stimulation was processed or at least began to be processed or part of it was whatever step of that process you want to be talking about, that we're going to probably experience more like auditory hallucinations. And yeah. if it's like around where our visual acuity tends to be processed, then we're going to experience more visual hallucinations. And so it kind of depends probably on things like dose, how it's metabolized, how much of it there is, exactly what the chemical properties are, exactly what the makeup of your brain looks like. And so it's going to be kind of different. And then there's set and setting, which is right. that what are you already doing at the time when that's ingested? Right. Yeah. And, you know, From what we know, it looks like these are the same kinds of processes that occur when you engage in really well-practiced mindfulness meditation. So that kind of makes sense as well to me, right? Like, you know, while the brain can sort of be used as this overgeneralized, overextended metaphor for, you know, we often do that. We stretch the brain 
not as like a science, but as a metaphor, right? Yeah. You ultimately have to assign a function to parts of the brain. And mm -hmm. a lot of times it's not that we as behavior scientists disbelieve the brain data. It's that what it is correlated to is often something kind of silly, right? Yeah. So like in the literature, in the cognitive brain literature, you know, these kinds of things are correlated with experiences of oceanic boundlessness, <laughs> right? Or these kind of silly constructs where you're like, what the hell is that? You yeah. know? And so it's not that I disbelieve the brain data or I think it's bad, but you know, in terms of scope, I would prefer that these metaphors be sort of more naturalistically rooted. Yeah. But it also does suggest something about the data already do suggest something about what's occurring. And it sort of maps onto this idea that learning who you are is verbal mm -hmm. and once that's learned it can also be disrupted but it is seldom disrupted mm -hmm. it's seldom it's pretty rare that you have a verbal experience where you think you're a chair <laughs> you know that's a kind of unique Maybe idea <laughs> yeah but like you know through mindfulness through actually really well practiced meditation that doesn't sound that crazy sure to sort of like transcend oneself quote unquote that's a function of, you know, the absence of language, right? Like that's the point of mantras. That's the point of a lot of mindfulness practices is to step outside of oneself, at least from a languaging perspective and experience something as, you know, from a different point of view. That sounds like, I mean, first of all, I, I think I certainly have heard people who do things like a lot of meditation and, and often even with respect to yoga and stuff, people talking about having a sort of a transcendent out of body sort of experience sometimes when they really get into a flow of it. But another thing that occurred to me just as you were talking about this is this does seem related to that idea of spirituality and how people sort of experience that. Yeah. And I think that's another sort of tough spot because when we're interacting with these senses of self, when we're interacting with these language functions, they're really closely related to the kinds of ideas that lead to spiritual thought. And so these things it's really hard not to slip into talking about transcendence or mm -hmm. spiritual kind of ideas, right? Historically and culturally, those ideas have been really intimately connected. And so, you know, there's a paper called Making Sense of Spirituality written in like 1984 mm -hmm. that suggests that, you know, where spirituality comes from, at least in part, isn't just like your mom yells at you because you don't go to church, yeah. you know, or Believe. there's, yeah, it's not, I mean, it is in part that, right? There's yeah. a, you're certainly going to be more likely to be interested in those kinds of things when you're around, when those contingencies are present. Yeah. When, when your whole, like your experiences that people tell you that this is a thing and yeah. Right. Yeah. That's gotta be at least part of it. Right. Yeah. But another part is that, is that I have a sense of self and there's a sort of natural question that arises from when you have that sense of self, like, well, holy shit, where was this before? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and where's this going to go when mm -hmm. I die? Right. And so those are cool questions and they come from these kinds of language functions, at least according to making sense of spirituality. Yeah. And so, you know, that creates a kind of minefield for psychedelics as a science. We're going to really be inclined to talk about non observable constructs when interacting with these kinds of language functions. Sure. Okay, so let's also talk about, I think there have been some people who, I don't know the best way to say this, those who talk about sort of the utility of psychedelics as it relates to things like just being more flexible, and they sort of talk about, about this in terms of your neuroplasticity and that sort of thing. Yeah, there is some data to suggest that 
these things do, to put it really loosely, let parts of your brain talk to each other that don't ordinarily. Mm -hmm. So that's typically talked about as these sort of like gating functions. And these gating functions really restrict the kinds of activity that can occur okay. in your brain. And one of the effects of psychedelics, at least sort of loosely, is that there's these really steep drops in blood flow. And so it sort of, if you will, restricts the things restricting the brain activity, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so altered gating functions is how this is often talked about. And so with these altered gating functions, you'll see brain activity that seems kind of atypical given that person's historical pattern of okay. brain activity. Uh, it sounds like basic inhibition is... It's like removing where there were once a common pattern. You've sort of just said, nope, free for all. Yeah. And so that is really exciting to a lot of people. And, mm. you know, there are some really basic studies that suggest that these things also lead to sort of neuroplasticity, which in the behavior analytic community, we tend to look at brain activity and behavior as corresponding. Mm -hmm. And so it just makes sense, like at a very superficial level that like yeah if you're doing something new your brain is changing yeah right like if you go skydiving there's going to be quote-unquote neuroplasticity that occurs and you can probably demonstrate that pretty readily mm -hmm. and i think there's some kind of crazy ideas that at a cellular level you start to like produce more brain cells that make connections that weren't made before but i think it's really just it's a really novel experience right at least it, it, from my level of analysis which isn't really the brain per se mm -hmm. is like this kind of whole organism interacting with the environment you know mm -hmm. you're experiencing something radically different and in so doing your brain's gonna experience some changes yeah and those changes are just gonna parallel that experience so i don't think that that's anything crazy i don't think that that's anything new but you know, the neuroscientific community is pretty excited about those kinds of things and good for them. You know, yeah. like I think that's cool and that's a thing that we need to understand in order to understand the full scope of the effects. But, you know, historically, I've always just looked at learning. You know, you can look at it from the biological level and you can study the, how the brain changes. And yeah, new stuff's going to pop up when you learn something new or when you experience something kind of radically different than what you're used to. When you break out of old patterns of behavior, you're sure. going to experience what might be called neuroplasticity. So that's okay. not terribly like groundbreaking, okay. but it does occur. Yeah. It's got people excited. Yeah. People are really excited about this idea that the brain can talk to other parts that it's not used to talking to. Fair enough. What that means, you know, I still think that there's a role for everybody, right? There's yeah. a role for the people who are studying like the language functions, who are in charge of set and setting, who look at the behavioral changes at the behavioral level. I think that those are the people who need to enter the conversation a little more because the neural people are really excited about this. But as I sort of mentioned before, they have really bad ways of talking about mm. these kinds of things. They're like, you know, this is the soul transcendent part of your brain mm -hmm. or, you know, this is the part where oceanic boundlessness can yeah. occur. Like that's not a good, that's a metaphor, right? Yeah. We need to recognize that as a metaphor for what the brain is doing and Oftentimes, those kinds of things can be really wrong, right? Yeah. In the same way that genetic expressions can be really oversimplified. Like, this is the gene that does blah. Yeah. <laughs> it does X or Y. And it's like, no, nah, it's never going to be that simple. Right. It does a lot of things yeah. in, in different contexts. And if you're not aware of the context, then you're going to be oversimplifying this into a kind of overextended metaphor. And so I think there's a risk of that and they need more people who study things, not just at the level of neurology, but who study things at the level of the organism situated in their context. And so, you know, hopefully there's places where these kinds of scientists are talking to each other so that these metaphors and these constructs that are being applied to the brain 
can sort of be more commonsensical and be more precise because I don't think they are very precise right now. And I think you could you could turn neurological data, current neurological understandings of psychedelics into a lot of different things. You could sort of make it fit your narrative in any way that you want it to fit. But generally speaking, you know, the kinds of things that are exciting is one, the medial prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, the part that is sort of, if you will, responsible for to put it really loosely yeah responsible for like sort of these i'm me processes yeah correlated with maybe yeah i think that's a better term correlated (laughs) with like self-reference right so like i'm me they sort of get shut down which again is similar to the kind of thing that happens with really well-practiced meditation Mm -hmm. and then the other thing is that you tend to see neuroplasticity and you tend to see reduced gating functions as a drop of in blood flow occurs and mm-hmm. those drops in blood flow tend to correspond with more powerful reported experiences. Oh, okay. So people when they can actually measure these steep drops in blood flow they tend to correspond with really profound kind of reports of what happened. Okay. Yeah, I was just thinking about with respect to the metaphor thing that people I certainly see in throughout the various domains of psychology researchers or practitioners or whatever being just a little too satisfied with landing on a metaphor that sounds good and then feeling like they've answered the question with a metaphor and then we're left then trying to study the metaphor as the thing that's now more interesting to us and it's like well we just made that up so there's not, <laughs> there's not like yeah. a lot there <laughs> yeah i'm, I'm uh, you know one of my examples for that is you know, it's really simple. I have a friend, Matthew Luan, who studies mice and he works with like the kind of the school of medicine on mm-hmm. some projects and he does behavioral research mm-hmm. and they have mice called MDX mice okay. that are meant to kind of mirror the effects of muscular dystrophy. Okay. Right. And so the med- the school of medicine sort of charged him a few years ago with like, hey, we have these MDX mice that we've altered their genetic structures in such a way that they are kind of mirroring muscular dystrophy. And muscular dystrophy is often correlated with drops in cognitive abilities in human beings, right? So if you have muscular dystrophy, the chances are good that you've experienced some kind of cognitive effects of that. And the medical community was, was sort of interested in, well, we've created this drug that we think affects muscular dystrophy in a positive way. We think you can rebuild muscle or at least slow deterioration of muscle. And we want to know if that affects the cognitive functions as well. Right. Which is a good idea. It's a yeah. good kind of common sense thing. But they they seem to have oversimplified like if like muscular dystrophy, then like less cognitively capable. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Matthew was sort of charged with like creating conditions which, which could test that theory. Mm-hmm. So like we'll put these mice through a series of tests to see how, quote unquote, smart they are. Mm-hmm. And what was kind of funny is initially the MDX mice were really motivated, right? So they, the effects of the muscular dystrophy had affected them in such a way that they really liked food. They had high metabolism and they would work like crazy for food. And so all of the tests that he was trying to put them through, they were working for food as you would do as a behavior analyst, right? You press the lever, you figure out the puzzle. And at the end is some kind of reinforcer yeah and so according to his test these mice were outperforming (laughs) these other mice really significantly which was a problem because we were trying to show no 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 no. these these mice are less cognitively capable than normal mice right which is sort of what the metaphor of muscular dystrophy would suggest right Mm -hmm. and so what you can kind of see in that 
And he had to work like crazy to like figure out like, okay, how do I show that these mice don't learn as quickly as other mice? Mm -hmm. Because it tended to be the case that they learned faster. Oh, okay. And that is a problem for the medical community because they want to show, you know, increases in cognitive capabilities. And that's just, it's just an oversimplification, Mm -hmm. right? But it's one that's really well disguised and you don't really know until you poke around in a really detailed way. Yeah. But you can sort of say at a blush, like, oh, people with muscular dystrophy experience cognitive delays. Mm -hmm. And that feels commonsensically like, oh, yeah, 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 this gene correlates with, and that could generally be true. Mm -hmm. But it may be due to these other underlying things that we haven't really tuned in in a very precise way. I think the same thing can be true here. I think that with psychedelic substances, we can really, really oversimplify yeah. the kinds of effects that it's having and the conditions under which those effects are occurring. And unless we really explore it in detail and unless, you, you know, it's really hard to just capture it in a sentence, in a, you know, at a glance yeah. and disseminate it in a way that's responsible, you know, and when you see these things in articles, it's just going to say, psychedelics increase brain plasticity and make you smarter right (laughs) right when it gets in the hands of a journalist who wants to put out a story that's you know is going to sell that's going people are going to look at Mm -hmm. these ideas are going to be so oversimplified that it's going to be borderline irresponsible yeah and i think psychedelics is at risk of that yeah absolutely so what what has you optimistic about psychedelics and where research is going and what you what you think would be is a cool future that you're looking forward to with this research line. Yeah. I mean, I sound, I feel like, you know, I I think it's good, but I've sound, I feel like I've made it sound like these things are a bummer and we shouldn't <laughs> pursue them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, there is a amount of skepticism around the kind of culture that sprung up and then just being really sensitive to the panacea when people treat it as like, Oh, we've a cure for everything. This will, this will do it. And I think, you know, again, people, showing up to my talks whereas historically when i've given talks people don't really pay attention <laughs> people don't want to come see you <laughs> no 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 but when i talk about something that you know could be really irresponsible all of a sudden there's standing room only i think that's that's alarming to me unto itself people shouldn't be that interested in this that they are showing up to my talks but i would say you know the things to be optimistic about are you know if we're right in our account of how it alters language functions, that's not nothing. Yeah. You know, it's it's not this magic pill that's going to have you undergo 10 years of therapy in, mm-hmm. in a day. It's not that. It's never going to be that. But it is maybe a useful tool that can like alter language in such a way that a person might have some kind of breakthrough. They might learn a skill. Okay. You know, so in ACT therapy, again, it's really common to teach people to move towards things that are painful, mm-hmm. right? And there's a whole reason behind that that's sort of justified as a process. But the basic idea is move towards sucky things, mm-hmm. right? Lean into your fears, lean into those kinds of things. Yeah. And psychedelics provide an opportunity to lean into things. And it sort of provides, at least at a psychological level, a kind of natural reinforcer. Mm-hmm. So if you are about to be eaten by a snake, the psychologist could help you move towards the snake's mouth Mm -hmm. right and you could be eaten by the snake and inside the snake could be like the coolest stuff (laughs) right and that would be the kind of thing a psychologist would want to do verbally with you anyway right like you know if you're afraid if you're afraid to touch the door handle because it has germs like 
extra touch the door handle and lick your hands afterwards and see what happens but the outcome of that won't, won't be like amazing yeah right it'll be nothing mm-hmm. you're not going to get sick probably right yeah. and nothing probably not the outcome of that is nothing you'll feel proud for a second that you did something that you were scared to do right but it's not going to be like this magical wonderland of like lights and flowers and yeah. those kinds of things that you might experience right you might experience this kind of wondrous experience if you go into the snake's mouth so in a way it does what act therapy sets out to do and it does it in a kind of interesting and potentially powerful way mm-hmm. and with proper support and with you know the right kinds of language around it i think that that's a potential experience that could be helpful to people Sort of like virtual reality, but dialed up to 11. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, reality, reality. Which, you know, virtual reality being another thing that I think we're a little too excited about yeah, in the right. modern era. Yeah. Like people thinking that virtual realms are going to solve every problem, right. I think is a dangerous idea as well. But yeah. yeah, I think that parallel holds true. Right. I mean, the idea just simply being that like with virtual reality, you get to be in a context that might be the one that you're dealing with that is causing some amount of suffering and and be able to practice dealing with it differently because it's virtual it's not necessarily real and then the psychological or the psychedelic model being a sort of a little bit less contrived (laughs) and what you're gonna get right but that you get to then get a new context that you can practice orienting to that context differently yeah and it and the process may be you know may occur in such a way that the person has no choice but to do those kinds of things right like you know, it's kind of like no taking the headset off. Yeah, when you're I mean, there's no escape button sometimes <laughs> yeah. from these kinds of things. And so that might be a good experience for somebody that yeah. could have therapeutic benefits. Okay. So I'm excited about those kinds of ideas. Yeah. I am also excited. You know, this sounds I'm not necessarily like a therapist who makes people feel better in a way you know like i <laughs> Make don't feel worse That's I, yeah. clear. <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm more in like how do we shape skills mm-hmm. you know that's sort of my domain of expertise right. like how do we teach people skills and i'm interested in you know how do we teach these kinds of complex language functions and there may be something there as well you know i do think that there is a kind of underlying truth to the idea that a lot of art a lot of useful creative products are also sort of the byproduct of psychedelic experiences of the artist you know it's pretty rare that an artist gets through their college years without having some kind of psychedelic experience i think fair you know you can trace a lot of useful art and music and those kinds of things to at least in part right people scrambling their neurological functions for a little bit yeah whether or not that leads to like you know pragmatically useful like i'm a physicist and i have been stuck on this problem for 10 years and then i eat mushrooms and now all of a sudden i've solved this problem i think the data are still out on that yeah and people are really overly seeking that answer and they're eager to say yes they're eager to say you were you're a physicist and you've been kind of not as useful and productive as you could have been you went and like had mushrooms in the forest for two days and you came back and solved a problem (laughs) i don't think that there's a lot of data at least real believable data that would suggest that that's what's happening sure and there's really not a lot of good ways to measure that also fair you can find those kind of anecdotal reports just about everywhere yeah if you hang around the psychedelic community for long enough you'll you'll find stories and they're always case studies they're always like you know there's it's because it's hard to capture it otherwise yeah it's hard to capture what it is to solve a problem in in terms of data how do you do that on a scale how do you do that as a double blind you know like yeah studying it can be challenging so 
maybe being skeptical is unfair, but it does tend to be the case that it's just like, I know a guy who yeah. solved the problem and he was stuck for a really long time. Right. And that kind of data, you know, it is what it is and you can take it sort of at face value, but I'm interested in those kinds of questions. I'm sure. interested to know like what kinds of, when you scramble people's language functions for a little while and they start to interact <laughs> with new stimuli, what kinds of products can come out of that? You know, not, not even in a helpful therapeutic way, but in a like, curiosity in a yeah, yeah. in a cool way that's a weird cool thing that you made kind yeah. of way yeah i mean uh, i think they're the saying that anecdotes aren't evidence and when you have enough anecdotes from independent sources it's certainly worth asking what's going on here sure but the anecdote itself isn't really good i guess it is just evidence is the word it's not a, a good support for some of those hypotheses especially ones that are particularly metaphorical and rely on things like oceanic boundlessness <laughs> yeah yeah and i think you know i think psychedelic substances earned a reputation as a kind of intellectual wonder drug for a reason mm -hmm. to an extent certainly not without any causality at, or any sort of rationale at all yeah. did it earn this sort of title is like if you've got a bunch of complex thoughts rattling around in your head if you you know use this substance under certain conditions you might experience some helpful benefits at least on a creative level Cool. I think I don't think that's a crazy idea, but yeah. I, I think we should be cautious. Yeah, about be scientists about it, yeah. basically. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I think that's a really great place to wrap this up. Thank you so much for joining me today. If anybody would like to learn more about this paper or reach out to you, do you want to share your email for people to reach out to you? Or, or we can filter them through and have them email us, and then we can pass along the non-crazy No, that's you. cool. My email is stulaw, S-T-U-L-A-W, three four at gmail.com cool <laughs> yeah and the paper hopefully if all goes well we should we should be seeing it in a couple months cool all right perfect well thanks again for joining me thank you everyone for listening as always you can reach us at info at www.podcast.com and that'll wrap up our our discussion for now we'll be revisiting psychedelics and other drugs and whatnot in the future but at least for now we're going to conclude here and if you're interested in supporting the show you can always rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts you are welcome of course we love having people join our patreon community you get access to for example this interview we took video almost the entire time we have an uncut version with us uh, stopping to cut stupid things and check things out so always fun to hear that sort of stuff and yeah that's all i've got this is abraham and we are out You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo designed by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.